This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. It used to be Congress had its own army of information researchers who could give members of Congress what they needed to know. Now members of Congress need to turn to lobbyists to get to what they need to know to figure out what to do. And it's no surprise then that what they learn from the lobbyist isn't just the unvarnished truth, but is a truth that benefits the clients of the lobbyists. Hello, and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, in his new book, America Compromised, Larry Lessig has this great line. It's, it's a line I wish people would use more when they write books, where he says that, my hope is simply that you leave this book with a way of talking about whether these or other institutions are, in the sense I describe, corrupt. My purpose is to introduce a way of talking. It is not to provide the punchlines. So this book and the work Lessig has been doing for some time now is about corruption, about institutional corruption. And he's using case studies of some of the central organizations and institutions in American life, Congress, Wall Street, uh, academia, law, media, medicine. And the question he's asking is, what would it mean for them to be corrupt? Uh, What would it mean? How would you define that kind of corruption? And then what really, if anything, could you do about it? Um, so this is a conversation about corruption. It's a conversation that I hope is going to challenge your views. It's challenged my views about what corruption actually is. And it's a conversation also about places where I have some issues with Lessig's definition of corruption. For instance, is he really just talking about capitalism and the incentives that come from having to actually pay money for people to work for you or to fund your work um, and calling that corruption? And if so, are the answers much more radical than he wants to admit? Or in a different space, would actually changing how we fund Congress, would moving it to small donors, it might fix some of the corruption problem, but would it create a new problem? Would it make Congress and politics in general more polarized? So these are, are complicated discussions and topics, um, but he's a fascinating guy. He, I've been learning from him and reading him for over a decade and arguing with him really helpfully for a lot of that time as well. So I'm very happy to have him on the show. Um, as always, you can email me with feedback, guest ideas, whatever, at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com, hopefully. Uh, I'm dependent on you in a non-corrupt way. Uh, but here is law professor Lawrence Lessig. Larry Lessig, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with a bit of your personal history. Um, I first knew your work as a leading legal thinker on copyright and the internet. And then in the fall of 2007, you gave that up and you said, an academic should throw away his intellectual capital every 10 years and start again. And you say in this book, that was dumb advice, it was stupid, and it was bad. And I'm curious why you've come to that conclusion. Well, I've I've come to see that uh, 
I'm not as smart as I thought I was, maybe. <laughs> I don't know, believe that. Some, some problems, no, it's true. Some problems, uh, like this one in particular, um, I think... Um, this one being corruption? Time. This is the corruption problem. It's going to take a long time to, to wrestle this one to ground. And I feel like after being in it for such a long time, there's still so much to learn. So, um, so I was wrong about that. And I'm going to be in this one for at least 20 years. So the issue is really that copyright and internet law, that one you could do in, in, in a decade. But, but corruption is just a bigger, messier beast. Well, that's it was a decade before I got bored enough to say I had to take on something bigger. <laughs> I, I admire that, though. I think it's hard for people to move when you're good at something or known in a field. I think it's very hard to, to, to make that kind of move. Has the work you did on, on the Internet and Creative Commons and, and how to think about that kind of intellectual property, has that informed your corruption work? It has. You know, the the work that I did related to the internet that I thought of most extensively was how to think about regulation. You know, what's the relationship between technology and legal values or values that a dem democratic society wants and norms and those values and the law and markets and how do those interact to produce the kind of environment that, that we want. And um, I think that approach is really important in the context of corruption as well. Um, and, you know, as I talk about in, in this book, um, many of the problems I think that have emerged in the context of media are driven not so much by greedy souls as by um, technology that just radically changes the way in which media interacts with our democracy. And without having a, a way or a perspective to pull those things together, I think it's harder to understand. And, and the perspective that I feel like I'm trying to deploy is something that I feel like I first deployed 20 years ago when I published my first book, Code. So let's put a pin in media and democracy because you have some thoughtful uh, things to say about that. And I'm obviously in that field, yes. <laughs> I would say, and, and, and want to talk about that. But let's start circling the question of corruption here, because when you talk about corruption, you're not discussing it or defining it in the way I think most people think of it. You write that you can have an institution that is corrupt, even if no one within that institution was also corrupt. So how can that be? Yeah, because what we're thinking about is not whether individuals are good or bad. We're thinking about whether the institution is serving the purpose we think the institution has. Now, many institutions, we don't even know what its purpose uh, is. So I'm not saying every institution has a purpose. I'm not saying every institution could be corrupted. But where we do have a clear sense of what the institution is supposed to do, um, there's also a clear way in which that institution can be failing to do that. Uh, and it's appropriate to think of that failure as a kind of corruption. Um, uh, and so, you know, let's take a simple example. I, you know, obviously an example at the core of the work that I've been doing uh, for the last decade, which is Congress. Um, you know, if you think of Congress as an institution that is designed to be dependent on the people, as Madison described it in Federalist 52, uh, indeed stronger than that, dependent on the people alone, um, and you see it emerge that the institution is also dependent um, on funders of campaigns. If candidates are spending 30 to 70 percent of their time raising money from uh, people to fund their campaigns, then that dependence is a dependence that's different from the dependence that was intended. And that difference is a kind of corruption of the intended dependence of the institution of Congress, even if, as I believe, almost no one in Congress is engaged in what we traditionally think of as criminal acts like bribery. 
So a lot of this definition of corruption comes down to this idea of the intended purpose of an institution. And it raises the question of who gets to choose what the intended purpose of an institution is, who gets to change it, who gets to define it. I mean, you you give in this case the, the example of Madison, but it seems plausible to me that over time, Congress or the voters, much more to the point, could understand Congress to be something different than what Madison understood it to be. Um, or, you know, you, you talk uh, – you, you actually give the example in the book of the mafia – and, you know, what if somebody came in and led the mafia and the mafia's purpose was to make money, but this person, this new mafia don decided they were only, only going to make it legally. And that might be better for the world, but the mafia might make less money. And you would say that is a corruption of the mafia's purpose. But couldn't you just say that was this guy changing the mafia's purpose? Well, that's right. We always have to first say, well, what do we think the purpose of this institution is? And, you know, part of the reason I wanted to deploy this idea of institutional corruption was to trigger that conversation. You know, it, it should be the obligation of people running any institution to reflect with uh, stakeholders in that institution about what they think the purpose is or what it should be. And, and of course, that purpose can change. It can, at one point, be a purpose of serving the public interest and then shift to a purpose of serving private interest or vice versa. And so I'm not trying to be normative about the purpose. In fact, I'm quite committed to being not uh, amor, anormative, if we can make that word, uh, about the purpose. I want to say whatever you want to say your purpose is, how have you structured the incentives of individuals within that institution relative to that purpose? And, um, and sometimes they cohere so that the in incentives on the individual reinforce the purpose of the institution, and sometimes they conflict. Uh, and if they conflict then that forces you to make a choice. Are we going to acknowledge that we actually have a different institution or it's serving a different purpose from what we tell ourselves it is? Or are we going to find a way to reform the incentives on the individuals so that they can serve the purpose of the institution as we've decided it should be? Let me go back to Congress for a minute, but not use the, the money dependency. So Joe Biden gave his presidential announcement speech recently. And in it, he had this line, it was a big applause line, where he said, you know, the American people, they have to do their jobs. They have to go into work every day and, and do a good job. And all they want from their president and their senators and their representatives is to do their jobs. Go do your jobs. And I hear this kind of thing all the time. And there's an idea that if Washington is working so badly, people are clearly not doing their jobs. But then there's also, you know, I think Democrats feel Mitch McConnell isn't doing his job, but Republicans think Mitch McConnell is doing his job. And so there is this collision between what we think the jobs of people in politics are. Is it to make the system work well? Is it to serve their constituents? Is it to serve the people who vote for them or all the people who they represent? And that seems to me to be a real point of conflict in our society because we can't decide what these people's jobs really are or who gets to decide what they are. We end up being really unhappy with the jobs they're doing. So how does your work on corruption help us clarify that conversation? Well, I'm not sure that it does clarify that particular uh, conversation. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I mean, and that's because it's not trying to solve or be normative about everything we want to complain about. I want to say that there are many things that are bad that are not corrupt. They're just bad. And, you know, the question of what the job of Congress is, you know, I agree is deeply uh, uh, ambiguous and, and changes and evolves. We have different conceptions of it. The only thing I'm saying is that where we can see a structure 
that is plainly inconsistent with something that, you know, we can say was identified as a value, then let's call it a corruption relative to that value. You know, as much as you could say Congress needs to do its job, I, I, I think one dimension of that criticism um, relates to, you know, the extraordinary amount of time that they spend raising money. Now, again, I, you said you wanted to bracket that, but I think that is a dimension uh, where, in fact, almost universally people look at that practice and believe it's a deep betrayal of the institution, or at least the consequences of it as a betrayal of the institution. So we could agree there, even if we can't agree on whether Mitch McConnell's job is to uh, block anything that uh, the Democrats in the House want to do or to make it so uh, Barack Obama doesn't have, as he said, it was his job, a, a second term. He failed at that job, unfortunately. So what what work then, and I recognize for, for the audience, some of this might seem a bit abstract and we're going we're gonna to ground it, but what work then is corruption doing in this? Why, why was that a concept that we needed to have these conversations as opposed to simply bad, right? This is a thing that Congress is doing or that Wall Street is doing that we don't like. Why do you think that this terminology and lens allows us to have a conversation we wouldn't be able to have without it? Well, I think that it's important to distinguish between what we at least presume to be taking for granted and what we are supposed to be arguing about. And the things that we presume that we should be taking for granted, I, I feel like are more fundamental to the practices and the institutions that we live within. And we need to have different modes of engaging each of them. So when we're talking about things that are fundamental, we should be talking about them differently. You know, we should take off our partisan hats and be able to address them um, almost like the, you know, let's call a halt to the game and let's step off the field and let's just ask ourselves these questions about these basic structures of our institution. And once we're okay with that, let's, you know, get back on the field. Let's let's take take our team, let's take our sides, uh, and then let's play the game. And then inside that game, we're gonna have lots of arguments and lots of struggles that we are very uh, vicious and um, uh, intent to resolve. But they exist within an institution that we ought to have some basic understanding uh, about that we agree on. And and I'm trying to point to those fundamental flaws that I think we ought to have an ability to um, come to an understanding or an agreement about. Um, and we need to, especially uh, for institutions that depend on the public's trust if they're to have their effect. So I, I like this distinction of fundamental versus non-fundamental dimensions of, of, of these professions. In the book, you talk about Congress, you talk about academia, you talk about Wall Street, you talk about the law, um, you talk about the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, and, and the medical industry. And in basically each example, what you're saying is that there is a purpose that this profession says that it has. But in fact, this profession has been distorted in some way or another by the hunt for money, by people inside it who want to make more money, by people who need to fund the work they're doing or fund the campaigns they're running. And so how much is this book just saying that capitalism is itself a corrupting influence? Yeah, so you made a big jump from money to capitalism, and I don't accept that jump. Um, so I, I am not an anti-capitalist. I think capitalism properly regulated is an incredibly important engine of prosperity. Um, so I'm not against the idea of people having an incentive to make money. I'm not against the idea of capitalism driving that process. What I'm against is institutions that allow themselves to be rendered vulnerable to these um, 
monetary incentives that that should know better. And so, um, you know, to the extent we're worried about the corruption of these institutions, we could also be worried about the corruption of capitalism. You know, our friends on the right who talk about crony capitalism are talking about the corruption of capitalism as an institution itself. And that's corruption induced by capitalists getting too close to government and using their power over government to weaken the competitive process of capitalism. Um, uh, that, that, I think, is a kind of institutional corruption as well. I talk about Luigi Zingales's work in this book, um, who is one of the best uh, libertarian critics of that dynamic in capitalism. So it's not about capitalism, but it is true, and I acknowledge this at the end of the book, you know, I, I feel a little bit stupid to confess this fact, but so for so long, I wanted to shut my eyes to the effect of inequality inside of um, our current political and uh, social reality. It's not that I denied that there was inequality. I just, I wanted to believe, you know, the kind of American story that it's, it's you know, it's a necessary evil to get us everything, all, all the other great things that we have. But, you know, and the, by the time I got to the end of this book, the actual force, you know, the discipline of having to write these arguments out, it became unavoidable, even for me, you know, it was obvious to many others, but unavoidable even for me that so much of these problems is driven by the growing inequality in our society. Not so much the inequality between the poor and the middle class or the poor and the rich, but the inequality that's growing up among the middle class and the upper middle class or the upper middle class and the rich. Uh, and that dynamic creates enormous pressure in these institutions that I don't think we've really fully reckoned. Um, and that's part of what I'm trying to do in this book, to get us to recognize that as we allow that inequality to grow, we're going to produce a perfect storm for the capacity of these institutions to serve their public function, to serve the public function that we think that they're supposed to have. I want to push you here because the 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 riff you gave on capitalism there feels to me like it doesn't quite face up to the force of some of what you're showing in the book, which is that at each level, and I should have mentioned the media is in here too, um, at each level of the institutions you're looking at, the corrupting influence comes at the point of funding. If they want to pay people, if the people want to make more money, if they want to be able to fund the things they want to do, they need to get funding. Somehow they need to get funding. And one thing that happens again and again and again is that people who have the money to fund them, have the money to pay them, have an interest. And that interest is often different than what the interests of the overall institutions are supposed to be. And so sometimes you have ideas about taking that out of the market. So for instance, in politics, and I agree with you on this, we should publicly fund campaigns. Sometimes you talk about norms. Um, but over and over again, I, I think one of the issues here is that we have institutions that we want to say have a purpose that is either not a market purpose or at least is not only a market purpose, but the primary ways they need to fund themselves are in the market. And it is in that collision between uh, capitalist incentives and non-capitalist ends that this corruption seeps in. Now, you can pull a lot of things out of the market, but it seems to me then you're just kind of getting at you're, – you're saying the same thing in a different way. I think there's a radicalism in the book that's a little bit deeper than you're giving it credit for there. Well, I mean, sometimes the story I'm telling is just about stupid market incentives. Um, so the market not yet getting it right. So, you know, Aaron Kesselheim is a 
doctor at um, Harvard Medical School, did a really incredibly interesting study. Um, it was funded by the Safra Center that I was directing at the time. And what Kesselheim did was he had doctors, he paid doctors to write research about drugs. And th these were made up drugs and it was made up research, but the, each of the summaries would basically say how the research was funded and what the method of the research was. Was it double-blind, random-controlled, or was it just anecdotal or whatever? Um, and then um, describe a little bit of the research. And what he was able to demonstrate was that the fact that the research was drug industry-funded substantially reduced the doctor's confidence in the conclusions of the research. So in a sense, what the funding was doing was defeating the purpose of the research. People had less confidence because of the method of funding. Now, that kind of research, that kind of uh, evidence, um, Kesselheim's study and others like that, could be used to just say to the drug companies, look, you want this research to be effective in the sense of convincing people of the results, you need to fund it differently. We have to find a different method of funding it. And whether that's passing it through a research agency, like NIH is effectively a research funding agency, or some trust that separates the researcher from the source of funding, whatever that method is, that's a necessary way to, to achieve what you're trying to achieve, which is research that convinces people of the truth of what ultimately is being asserted. So that's a case of like, it's just not working even for the interest of those who are funding it. But, but let me let me offer the counter-argument on that, because um, I think this is interesting. So on the one hand, these pharmaceutical companies are incredibly, uh, they're incredibly, incredibly profitable. I mean, for 30 years, pharma was the most profitable industry in America before energy took over for it. So one, it isn't clear to me it's not working for them. But the other is that in that same chapter, you offer a tremendous amount of evidence that when drug companies fund those researchers, when they fund that research, they corrupt it. That, um, for instance, you show a study in there that says there is a lot of weak research that is used to make the recommendations and that it turns out when you look at the flaws in that research, the flaws all point in the direction of the drug company funding it, that it, it all like comes out in the drug company's favor. So when you say the market isn't working or it's not working for the drug companies, maybe they're making a very rational calculation that it's better to have that effect on the research, even if the research is taken a bit less seriously, than to not be able to have that kind of control over the research. But here, I think there's a kind of collective action problem with the drug companies. It's no doubt the case that for some drug companies or some drugs, they've got to rely on the cheat in order to succeed. But it's not the case that the industry as a whole wants it to be that the research is actually not true or actually not producing results that are reliable. What the industry as a whole wants is for people and doctors and the public both to be able to rely on the research and to rely on the claims being made. So here, the industry, I think, has an interest in self-policing because self-policing here would actually increase the uh, reputation of the industry as a whole and therefore make the value of what the products that they're offering raise the value of the products that they're offering. Um, now, I'm not sure that they can do that on their own, so I'm not saying that by suggesting this, I'm not saying that there's no role for government. Indeed, to the contrary, I think we need, in many of these contexts, sensible intervention by the government. But all I'm trying to suggest is that it's not necessarily against the self-interest in the sense of a long-term self-interest of the industry to avoid the kind of corruption that I'm talking about. Um, uh, now, you know, it, again, when you say it's a cheat for me not to acknowledge the role of capitalism here, I'm not saying that capitalism unconstrained wouldn't want to corrupt in the sense that I'm describing each of these 
institutions. Of course it would. Um, but I'm saying nobody should ever imagine an institution called capitalism unconstrained. Of course we need government to draw lines around where capitalism can reach, recognizing the natural tendencies in these different domains for capitalism to corrupt in exactly the way that I'm describing. All that I'm saying is I think those lines can be drawn and enforced. And if they are drawn and enforced, then the you know resulting engine of economic growth is one that we should celebrate, not one that we should um, be perpetually skeptical of. Yeah, and let me be clear about where, where I come from on this and for the audience as much as, uh, as for you, which is that I'm, I'm also – I also consider myself a capitalist. Um, but I think that I've become convinced that more areas of life um, should not be under market incentives than currently are. Um, there are a lot of places where capitalism is an amazing engine of growth. And then there are a lot of places where what we do, we do not just want an engine of growth. We do not just want an engine of profit. We do not just want an engine of market incentives. And I actually think that your book takes a tour not exclusively, but largely of places like that, um, of places where there's something we want from a really important industry and leaving the industry as subject to the whims and, and incentives of capitalism is not getting us what we want. But we often don't have great language for that because we're so bought into the idea that capitalism is a good thing, that just discussing it as a corrupting thing or um, discussing it as itself a thing that has incentives different from the ones we even set for it. It's difficult. I mean, you're you're saying that we should never have unrestrained capitalism, um, but of course, you know, the more capitalism you have, the more it wants to unrestrain itself, right? The more it it creates inequality, people spend that money to to deregulate themselves. That's a story you tell a couple of times over in the book, um, which is maybe a good way to talk actually about the Wall Street chapter. Uh, you argue that the banks that led us into the financial crisis, that were uh, pricing very unsafe assets, is very safe. That they were not corrupt, that they were just doing what they were supposed to be doing. Can can you give a little bit more detail on that? Yeah, but let me say before we get there, the way you've just characterized this point about capitalism is something I completely agree with, obviously. Yeah. It doesn't follow from I like capitalism that capitalism ought to exist in every domain. And indeed, we can see lots of domains where introducing capitalism and inse capitalist incentives or self-interest incentives would completely defeat the purposes uh, of those institutions or those domains. So, yes, this is not about capitalism sim in sim simple terms. Uh, so we don't seem to have a disagreement about that. We also don't have a disagreement about the need to keep it out of certain places, even if it's if it's a valuable force in other places. Um, um, OK, so let's talk about uh, finance. Um, in the chapter on finance, I distinguish between the banks and the rating agencies. And what I want to do by that distinction is to suggest that sometimes the problems we observe are problems of corruption, and sometimes they're just problems of bad results or results that we're not happy about. And the way to know whether it's one or the other is to ask, what's the purpose of the institution against which we are measuring? So in the context of rating agencies, the law had basically set them up as having a public purpose, which they um, betrayed by allowing their incentives, the incentives of the agencies to basically turn on advancing the profit of those whose assets they were rating. So there was an obvious conflict of interest there that resulted in the ratings being totally unreliable in a context in which um, the consequence of that was devastating. So rating agencies from this perspective um, should be seen as corrupt. But banks are living within a regulated industry that sets the terms of the risks that they're allowed to be taking. 
and they take their risks uh, given the terms that are set on them. Now, you could step back and say, well, they're responsible through the corruption of the political process for many of the constraints being relaxed, and I completely acknowledge that. In fact, I talk about that. But given the constraints as they existed leading up to the 2008 crisis, did they behave in a corrupt way? No, they just behaved in a bad way relative to social value. But they didn't do anything against the institutional objectives or norms that they were given by the law and by the tradition of banking. And so that's why I can say I hate what they did, and I think what they did was enormously costly to the uh, economy. But what they did was not in the sense that I want to describe it corrupt. And to draw something out here, what you're saying on some level is that the banks exist to make money. They make money by competing with each other for business. And the way the rules of competition were set up, it incentivized this kind of competition and this kind of approach to, to assets. Is that fair? Yes. And I think there's an interesting distinction then with the media chapter. So because I want to compare these a bit. So do you want to talk a little bit about your theory of media corruption? Sure. I mean, there's a couple of parts. Which part do you want to talk about here? Well, I, I want to talk about actually the market incentives in the media. You give a riff in there about the way in which as media has become more competitive, the there has been a kind of corruption away from its purpose as a institution that creates a baseline of information on which democratic deliberation can take place and towards an institution that is weighing what is important against what will get audience. Mm-hmm. And that within that, that there that there is a corruption from what one might believe the media is, or at least what the media might tell people it is. Yeah, you summarize my work better than I can, so that's why I let you do that for me, Ezra. Thanks. Very kind. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, and and this is actually, I've just finished another book that's, uh, I hope, is going to be out in the fall, but, um, but where I'm trying to extend this idea, um, because I think it's a really incredibly difficult problem we have. But yes, I think that the, the nature of media that we are evolving into shows us just how unique and uh, kind of bizarre in the history of humanity the media of the late part of the 20th century was. Um, you know, because the media of the late part of the 20th century, um, as you know, Marcus Pryor and others have have demonstrated empirically, was a very unique media in the sense that it was highly concentrated, which gave participants in that media enormous market power uh, against the politicians, right? So the politicians didn't have a chance to evade them or their questions. And it set a tone for public debate that was in the history of culture very, very special because, um, you know, the public, all of the public gets to focus on issues in a relatively moderate frame, not saying it's true or not saying it was complete or I'm not trying to praise it. I'm just describing its uh, character. And and that created an expectation which, relative to where we are today, seems um, completely un- un- not obtainable ever again. Um, and so I think that changes the dynamic of journalism, and um, it creates a new challenge for people who are trying to imagine um, you know, having a conversation about issues of national import where all of us are on the same page, at least on the facts, forget the values, at least on the facts. And 
And that's the challenge that I don't think we have a clear sense of how we're going to solve. So I'm writing a book. And unlike you, I, I don't seem to be able to do a bunch of these. <laughs> it's been taking me a long time. <laughs> but I have a media chapter, and I also dwell quite a bit in that chapter on Marcus Pryor's research. So, so do you want to just expand on that? You mentioned he's a political scientist at Stanford and has done, I think, really foundational research in how we should think about what has changed in media dynamics over the past couple of decades. Um, do, do you mind expanding on his work a bit? So let's start with Pryor. So what Pryor did was relate um, television to politics um, over the, you know, the roughly important period of like 1955 to 1985. Um, and what he was able to demonstrate was that as television spread and as markets became saturated uh, in the sense of everybody has television and they're all focused to what's on television, that changed politics. And the reason it changed politics is that ordinary people became much more familiar with the news because the news was on television and people couldn't resist watching television. It was on it was on at the same time on all channels. And so, you know, you wanted to watch television, you were going to be watching the news. And as people became more familiar, they became more engaged politically. And as they became more engaged politically, that changed the mix of who was engaged politically. It changed it to be more middle class and lower middle class Americans voting than ever in the history of America. Um, because more lower and middle class Americans felt like they knew something to be voting on, and that and that increased their participation. Um, now, this was in a sense a product of the inefficiency of television in the 1960s and 1970s. You know, it's not like people really wanted to be watching the news; they just didn't have a chance to watch anything else. There was nothing else on. But as cable television comes along and gives us a hundred different channels, we can choose to watch the Home Shopping Network rather than watching Walter Cronkite or the equivalent. Um, and, and so we do, most of us, but there's still a tiny fraction of us who are the kind of news junkies who stay tuned in regardless of what else is on. And those news junkies have a different um, incentive uh, or instru different structure of incentives so that the News media plays to those news junkies, and those news junkies, it turns out, are more polarized um, than the public as a whole. And that has begun to have a dramatic effect on the character of news as it's as it's presented. Yeah, I'll just add to this a little bit because I think this research is so fascinating. So he has a study where he manages to look at people right as both cable and the internet roll out. And he compares households that have cable and the internet and the explosion of access to information that offers to the households that don't and just have television and radio in the, in the way that you're talking about it in the, the prior era. And what he finds is that average political information doesn't change. It just stratifies by interest. So yeah. before, everybody knows a bit about politics because if you're watching TV, you hear a bit about politics. And then once you get cable and internet, and this is early, I mean, this is before we have MSNBC and Fox News and Box and, you know, like the million other things you can get now. So this is like 2002, 2003. What he finds is that now the people in those households, if you are interested in politics, you know a ton about it. But if you're not interested, you know nothing um, versus everybody knowing a bit. And so this this move towards a choice based media is really important. And then as it gets more competitive and I feel this, you know, having watched and, and existed in the media in this era, as it gets more competitive in an era when people can make very different choices, you're really competing for audience attention. And so there is this tension between, you know, maybe what you think is the most important story of the day and what you think is the most important story of the day that will make sure you don't lose audience to your competitors. And you can say that is not our purpose. Um, you can say, you know, that's not what you promised me the media would do. But I have to pay writers somehow. 
um, and the Washington Post had to pay me somehow. And it, it, it goes on and on like that. And, you know, I talk about this a lot on the show, but I really think there's a tension in journalism between how much of a competitive industry we are now and how much we are willing to admit that into our purpose and, and deal with it forthrightly uh, versus back when we had a monopolistic set of business models. You know, you were the one newspaper, one of two newspapers in the area or you're one of three um, nightly news shows. That is a business model about a appealing to the most people without offending any of them. And it creates a different kind of news, both for for better and for worse. But I guess the question there is that, is that a change in our purpose or is that a change just in our business models? Well, I think the first thing it does is it throws up exactly the question that you framed. Like, what is our purpose now? Like, what are we trying to do here? Um, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book, Not Yet Out, is just the you know, if you just said, look, the job, if the job of media is to help us understand, let's say, the presidential uh, contest um, so that we understand what the issues are and where people are on the issues and what they would do if they were president about those issues, it's not hard to say that the, the, the ecosystem as a whole is failing at that mission fundamentally. And it's not hard to see the relationship between these incentives that you've just described and its failure. You know, people talk about for example, the Hillary Clinton quote-unquote scandal, email scandal, which I don't think was a scandal. I think, you know, it was completely misunderstood exactly what happened there. But anyway, people talk about that scandal. And then, you know, note the fact that that was the most reported, the scandals around Hillary Clinton were the most reported thing around Hillary Clinton. And, you know, whether or not you think that was important to report something about Hillary Clinton and the scandals, the idea that this is the most important in the sense of the thing covered the most is just crazy. Like, it, it's a complete mismatch between what uh, people need to understand and what, in fact, is profitable to be talking to them about. And, and that, I think, is a function of exactly what you're describing. Now, you could say that this is, you know, the incentive. I completely agree with you. One way to think about this is that it's the incentives of uh, money inside this marketplace. I think it's also interesting to think about the way it's a function of our capacity to count um, in just the trivial sense that there's a technology that makes it easier to see that when, you know, Chris Hayes starts talking about this story as opposed to that story, people are going to switch off to, you know, a competing channel versus not switch off, right? If we have that ability to know exactly what people are doing minute by minute, it's going to be hard for the producers not to use that information to try to steer what's being spoken about. It's going to be hard for them to resist um, telling the you know, people who are create the creatives or the editorial part, here's what you need to be doing to keep the attention at the level we need the attention to be kept. But, you know, the ability to have that technology to count is pretty contingent. Um, and so I think about uh, uh, in this the book that I'm finishing, uh, that I finished is thing called the slow democracy movement, which is, you know, the efforts to try to push us back into modes of communicating about um, democracy questions. Uh, in a slow modality rather than, you know, kind of the Twitter modality or the cable news, you've got, you got three minutes to talk about whatever you're going to talk about. And podcasts are obviously one place where that happens. So, you know, I celebrate the fact that you uh, would have a podcast here, Ezra, given, you know, you've had a, you know, you succeeded in every mode of, of media. But here's one where I hope you really concentrate effort because these are contexts where people get a chance to reflect for a long time on a question as opposed to the 20 seconds or 10 seconds of, of modern media. But one of the reasons why it's possible to do that is that minute by minute, 
we don't yet have the technology for you to know whether talking about you know media is actually more profitable than talking about pharmaceuticals in the podcast you're having with me right now. If you had that technology and you could see that, okay, we've taken a turn down the media path and in fact, people are less interested. They'd rather be talking about pharmaceuticals. It would be really hard for you to resist steering back towards pharmaceuticals as opposed to continuing what you want to talk about, which is media. And so in certain sense, it's the, it's the inefficiency of this technology and in, in giving us information about what the audience wants that allows you to be the editor that we ought to encourage you to be, the person who's deciding what is important and what we should be talking about. And we need more of that kind of power in editors. But the problem is the technology of the media environment right now is decimating the power of editors because the algorithm of attention is driving us towards what the public at least seems to think it wants as opposed to what it needs to be exposed to to understand what it has to make judgments about. So first, I'm worried yeah. now that our media chapters or books are going to say too many of the same things. But <laughs> putting that aside, I look, look there's a lot there. Um, but one thing that it, it does raise for me is this question of I like the way you put it is counting. The way I put it is is having too much information that there's an inefficiency in markets that can be a space in which judgment can come into play. And if you don't have that time and if you have too much information, it becomes easy to overwhelm your own judgment, right? I mean, well, you know, people like this, they don't like that. I, I just did a podcast with Brian Stelter, which, which people can find a couple weeks back, um, who's a CNN's media reporter. And we were arguing about this a bit, that, you know, I've done cable news and I've hosted shows on cable news. And I think the culture there of looking at the Nielsen ratings is overwhelming and it shapes everything in that space. And, you know, I go back and forth on it, to be honest. I am, you know, if you were a writer working with me, you would know that I put a very heavy premium on writing things that people are going to read. The idea that we're doing our job, if nobody is actually paying attention, well, then we're not actually informing anybody. Um, it doesn't work that way. On the other hand, if you're writing about the wrong things um, because people will read those, then you're also not doing your job. But the thing that I struggle with in this space is that it's very easy to come down hard on everyone. It's very easy to say, oh, cable news shouldn't care about the Nielsen's and digital sites shouldn't care about Chartbeat and the New York Times shouldn't care about Google Analytics. But all these places are trying to keep their writers employed. All these places are trying to use some kinds of journalism to fund other kinds of journalism that are slower and more expensive and require people to travel. And, you know, one thing that having started an organization in this era has really made me think a lot about is how comfortable we are having so much of political journalism be a market phenomenon. Um, in the past, it was a very inefficient market that was built on top of monopolies. And that had a lot of problems, too, by the way. But it had some advantages. And now we're getting to a much more efficient and much more competitive market. People have many more choices and we don't seem to like what we're getting. And it's not that I'm so comfortable with, say, government being a funder here. That has a lot of other obvious problems. But it does seem to me that there's a real collision between how we are asking these organizations to fund the work we want them to do and then also how we are criticizing them for what happens when they pay attention to the things that could get that work funded. Yes, I do fear we're going to say the same thing in our books. I completely agree. I, but I, that's part of the reason why I'm interested in having a way of talking about corruption that isn't about calling, you know, Brian Stotler 
immoral. Well, right? I'm not I, I'm, I'm not calling Brian Stelter immoral for the record. <laughs> no, I, I would. But my point is, I think all of us want to have a way of criticizing the institution without making people feel like um, we're criticizing them individually. Now, you know, I've had this experience in the context of Congress for a long time. As I criticize Congress, it's striking to me how many congressmen feel attacked personally. And you try to say to them, look, it's not you. It's the institution. And and you ought to be on our side and supporting the reform of the institution because it would be a better place for you. And it's the same thing with journalism, right? It's not that, you know, you want to say to CNN or to MSNBC, um, you're bad people and therefore you're destroying democracy. It's instead to say, look, what have we built? What's the structure of incentives we've built? And what can we expect will flourish within that structure. And if what we need is not going to flourish in that structure, then we got to build different structures. we got to find different ways to create what we need. Um, and here, you know, I, I, in a certain sense, I, I draw in a parallel to like the fast food industry, or this is like the parallel of the slow food movement. But, you know, when you think about processed food and the way, you know, these are industries that are focused on uh, hacking our um, uh, physiology so that we are deeply addicted to, you know, food that's profitable but turns out not to be good for us. Um, you know, it's it's just a reality of how our bodies react to these kinds of chemicals being presented to us in the context of food. And then the reaction to that is not so much to say you guys are evil by, you know, behaving in a free market in the way you're behaving. It's to say what other incentives or understandings or framing can we bring to get people to eat differently? You know, it's not necessarily... Uh, Michael Bloomberg uh, regulation of, um, you know, soda sizes, even though I think that's a great idea, but it is about creating a different set of incentives so that we can get what we need as far as healthy food. And I think that's the same question in the context of healthy information that would help us understand and, and be a better democracy. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. So let me let me try something out on you that I've been thinking about. And it unites some of what you're saying about the media and about Congress, which is 
in all of these areas, you can imagine ways of structuring how politicians and how media organizations act that are either more dependent on the state and elites, um, depending on which one you want to look at. You can imagine media organizations get subsidies from the government or from something like the National Science Foundation. Um, or you could imagine, you know, in, in the world we actually currently live in, members of Congress who are going to elites of different kinds to fund their campaigns. Um, or you could imagine pushing more of that to the public, um, either because you're doing small donor democracy among uh, members of Congress or because, as in the media, you've created a much more competitive market where what people are basically selling is scale and audience. So you're really getting the choices made by individual voters at a very, at a very mass scale and you have a lot more information about what they want. And it seems to me that the problem of the elite model is it it censors you. It may it pushes you to be corrupt in the sense that you are trying to appeal to to the desire to, of those in power. Um, and the problem with the the public model is that it polarizes you. Um, it's pushing you to sort of appeal to fandoms, to appeal to the most engaged and often, particularly in politics, the angriest people in the game. Um, and so, neither one feels like a great answer to me. Um, but they both have different kinds of problems, and I'm I'm curious if that account of the problems feels reasonable to you. It does. And that's what led has led me to think the part in this story that we have to adjust or relax is the expectation that all of us at any one time are going to know enough about any particular issue to have a judgment worth listening to. You know, you know, so one of the assumptions that that broadcast democracy left us with is that in a certain sense, at any particular time, we're all supposed to be equally, you know, informed or sufficiently informed about any particular issue to have a judgment that's worth listening to. And I don't know why we actually think that's true, you know, because so think about traditional classical Republican theory would think of the citizen as much of a, a public officer as the president of the United States or as members of Congress. But, you know, presidents of the United States, this one accepted, or members of Congress or judges on a court like the Supreme Court, are people who come to their view after having a process to inform them and let them hear both sides and then make a judgment. And in that process, they get staff. And their staff is um, competent to provide them with the information they need. Just like, you know, you and your um, you know, your particular corner of the media universe. You've got um, an opportunity to reflect and to have information provided to you and a staff to support you, and you come to a judgment, and that judgment is some something that, you know, speaks for you because it's it's the product of that process. But when you turn to the public, you know, the public is polled about a particular issue. Should we have, you know, more tariffs in uh with China, or should we, um, you know, have thorium reactors? Um, uh, and the public has a view because, you know, you can't help but express a view when you're asked these questions. But in the process of coming to that view, the public has had no opportunity to have the information presented to them in a balanced way or a complete way. They've either listened to MSNBC or to Fox News or whatever, you know, their particular mix is. They've had no real chance to deliberate about it. They've had no support of staff to get to that conclusion. And so they, it's, it's a system designed to render the public ridiculous. Whereas, you know, the experts or the elite or the, you know, some of the politicians at least live within a system that allows them to seem sensible or to seem informed or um, have a certain judgment. 
Um, now, in response to that, you could say, well, let's figure out how to make the public just as informed as the politicians or, you know, just as respectable as they could possibly be. But I think part of the reality we need to accept is that we're never going back to the 1970s. We're never going to go back to a period where we're all listening to the equivalent of Walter Cronkite every night. Um, and if we're never going back there, we're never going to have a public that's in this sense informed sufficiently all of us at any particular time. Maybe we just need to give that idea up and think about how we build a representative public. I don't want the elite. I want a representative public to speak for the public in a regular or informed way and to rely on that more and more uh, and to rely on this uninformed public less and less. So in this book, the new book, I describe the public as ignorant. I'm getting a lot of trouble for this word, but I mean that in a very technical sense, not that they're stupid, um, just that they're 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 not informed. And why would you expect them to be informed? You know, they've got, you know, we have lives, we have things that we do. You know, we have lots of demands that pull us away from understanding the issues enough. So rather than this fake assumption that we do understand them enough, let's just accept the reality and figure out how we build public input into the process that's uh, informed and reflective and respectable without expecting that all of us can be turned into many public public nerds again. But haven't you just reinvented representative democracy as a way of handling the failures of representative democracy? Yeah. Well, yes. So... Um, I First of all, I'm a deep representative democracy person. I'm not a direct democracy person. And I want more and more responsible representative democracy. So that's why I'm worried about, you know, the way campaigns are funded and, and, and all the structural incentives that screw up our existing democracy. But even with all that solved, we have come to the place where we expect the publics to have a voice in the process. You know, in the 19th century, nobody expected the public was going to have a voice in the process because you couldn't hear the voice. There was no polling. There was no way to actually knew what, know what the public thought, right? There was an interpretation of what the public thought given to us by, by um, you know, politicians and other people who presumed to speak for the public. But there was no empirical way to know what the public thought. Now there is. But the public now is not the public of the 1970s. Uh, it's not a public that, you know, has this regular diet of bland media presenting to them, uh, you know, the information of the day. Now the public is like radically, as you described, polarized by the structure of incentives that's dri driving us in all these different ways. So now we have to figure out a way to, to make a representative public again. Um, not a representative democracy, but a representative public, a public that is sufficiently representative so that when we hear them, um, we have some confidence in them as opposed to the public that we hear right now. But then what's the theory for why representative democracy is failing us? Is it just a, a structure issue to your point that it's no longer representative enough because it's too dependent on, on, on money? I'm also a fan of representative democracy, but the thing that seems to me to be part of what is undermining it and would undermine this as well is we have developed a much more small-day democratic ideology as a culture. We don't really believe that it is valuable or viable or right for people to be making decisions on our behalf. We're offended that a party might be involved in its own primaries. We're offended that, um, you know, political representatives might do things that are different than what we wanted them to do, even if their judgment is that a different thing was the right course of action. And so I wonder how much, you know, I'm, I, I take your point about not being a direct democracy person, but I wonder how much is just a detention between uh, an era in which we don't believe in elites and we don't believe in leaving things up to others. Um, and we also don't have the capacity to do everything ourselves. 
Well, I, I agree that we are small d democratic in all sorts of ways. And I want to say that we shouldn't be. Um, and I, I don't mean that we shouldn't be as an elitist asserting we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be as a Democrats. We should recognize as a people that we shouldn't be so insistent on small d democratic control. Part of what's, what's, what's happened here is that we have representative institutions that are so terrible that we don't have any reason to have any faith in them. And then we say, well, if they're not going to be so terrible, then we certainly can step in and be better. That dynamic has existed throughout the history of democracy. You know, you think about the first progressive movement. First progressive movement is inspired by representative democracy and it becomes so captured by corrupted corporate interests that nobody could look at what they were doing, uh, the party bosses being bought off by corporations and think of them anything as anything to turn to, anything to have any faith in. So instead of them, the progressives wanted to create direct democracy alternatives. Now, I think we should learn by now those direct democracy alternatives were not great ideas. Yeah, like the party primary, right? The party primary was the party bosses can't be trusted. So we're going to create these primaries. But what we know about primaries is the people who participate in the primaries are the most extreme polarized party members. So that the party primaries become a way to make the party process more polarized than it otherwise would be if it were in fact representative of the people in the parties or the people in the nation. Um, or, you know, elected judges. There could be no more stupid idea, in my view, than the idea of elected judges. But that was such an obvious response at the time of the progressive movement because, you know, the judges seemed to be so corrupted or so bought off or so controlled by the capitalist interest of the time. So I understand the response, but then we ought to have a, a second kind of response. We ought to say, well, um, maybe the first thing we should do is to fix representative democracy. And if we could fix representative democracy and give people a reason to have confidence in it, um, uh, and not, you know, create a bunch of elites to guide or control representative democracy, but to create representative bodies to help guide and control representative democracy. Um, then I think that this drive for direct democracy or, or a more small d democratic uh, uh, control um, could could abate. But uh, there's that's a long way down the road because I agree with you right now. We are trapped in the Ronald Reagan frame. You know, government is not the solution. Government is the problem. Um, representative democracy is not the solution. Representative democracy is the problem. Uh, and so long as that's the way we think about these problems, then the democratic response is unavoidable and yet I think is doomed to failure. So let me make the argument for, for small-D democracy here as a possible fix for our problems because I, I, I think about this a lot and I think I've been coming out more and more towards a more radically small-D democracy approach to this. When I think about what is wrong – when I look at American politics and, and and look at what's wrong, well, one thing that's wrong is that the Republican Party was rewarded for nominating Donald Trump through the, the exact primary process you're discussing. But they wouldn't have been rewarded for nominating Donald Trump if there hadn't been an electoral college. If there hadn't been an electoral college, it would have lost for nominating Donald Trump. And if the Senate wasn't crazily unsmall-day democratic, if it didn't have this equal state representation and a huge bias towards very, very small states, um, Republicans would be quite dramatically in the minority in the Senate and even more so than they currently are in the House. And my point there is not that small-day democracy is good because it would make Democrats um, more powerful. My point there is that 
it would be good because then Republicans would have to actually be running candidates and coming up with ideas that uh, were of more value to people, that, that the more people wanted. I was looking at a list of the most popular governors in the country. And forgive me if I get this wrong from memory, but I think something like six or seven out of 10 of them were Republican governors in blue states. There's no evidence to me that Republicans can't come up with a popular governing agenda, but they don't come up with it if they can win instead by constraining the electorate to just sort of the people they would like to be voting or at least a a smaller percentage um, of the people they want to be voting. And so – you know, and similarly, some of the, the the work you talk about with money and politics, if you didn't have things like the filibuster and some of these other distortions, I think it would be be easier to pass. And so, I think that there are complicated ways of fixing the system, and and, and some of the, the the ideas you're coming up with here strike me as probably better than what we have. But I just wonder if the simple answer is that we live in an era of too much minority rule and giving more power to majorities would, you know, not bring us to any kind of utopia, but would bring us to a much better place than we're currently in. Well, we might have just a semantic difference here because everything you would describe as democratic, I think, is more properly described as representative. So the problem with the Senate is it's not representative. It's not representative of citizens. It's representative of states, but it's not representative of citizens. And because of that, it produces the consequence that the leaders of the Senate are uh, minority leaders of the nation. Same thing with the Electoral College. Same thing with gerrymandered electoral districts. The same thing with suppressing the vote as as states do um, to suppress the vote of their political opponents. Um, These are all examples of the failure of representativeness. Now, the reason I think that's different from democratic is the critical flaw to democratic is you can't be sure that the representative public shows up to vote. Now, you could blame them and say that, you know, it's their fault for not showing up to vote. But I don't think it's a morality play. I think we ought to set up structures to assure that it's a representative group that is participating. And once you know it's a representative group that's participating, I totally agree. We need structures to get to the majority position. So that's why things like ranked choice voting, I think, are obvious innovations to drive us more towards majoritarian candidates, candidates that actually represent a majority of a party, which, of course, Donald Trump never would have been um, had ranked choice voting been in the Republican primary in 2016. Um, Because I think majoritarianism is an incredibly important value, but it needs to be a majority of a representative public. And small d democratic in the sense of, you know, like party primaries, which are small d democratic, don't necessarily produce representative. So you and I have been having a kind of discussion for years now about whether the core problem in American politics is money or polarization. I'll never forget when we were at a lunch and we had this conversation at lunch and then you somehow integrated a rebuttal to me into a presentation you gave immediately after lunch. It was such like a fast <laughs> turnaround time. But I wanted to ask you about your view of how the two things interact because it's something I'm struggling with in, in the work I'm doing right now. What do you think of as a relationship between money and politics and polarization in politics? What do you think the evidence says right now? Well, when you're talking about small dollar funding of campaigns, um, uh, the reality is, you know, not in a world of publicly funded small dollar funding like vouchers, but in a world that we have right now, the evidence is that that funding is polarized. Um, and, And so, you know, you appeal to a polarized base and that polarized base drives an agenda which continues to be profitable for those that are trying to appeal to that base. So if you're on the right, you're going to push certain buttons around identity politics and um, abortion. If you're on the left, you're going to push certain buttons that are about identity politics and abortion. And, and that's going to 
flush out the money that either side um, is desperate to to bring to the bring to the to the story. I think in other contexts, though, money is not necessarily polarizing. You know, I think one of the big problems is that the rich are not. Uh, you know, the rich are more conservative, regardless of their party. They're more conservative on the Democratic side. They're more conservative on the Republican side, and and so. Um, the money interest, uh, or the you know the money, uh, big money uh, interest inside of politics, is not necessarily polarizing. It's one of the ironies of this kind of pledge by all these Democrats not to take any corporate PAC money. Well, corporate PACs are actually the most moderate PACs in our political funding world, um, and so by saying we're not taking any corporate PACs, you're taking you're saying you're not going to take any of the moderate money. You're going to take the extremist money. Um, um, and so I think that's a complicated relationship between money and polarization. Um, now, where we don't disagree is the polarization or a sor- sorting, as, as um, uh, you know, I think might be a more proper way to put it, the sorting of politics to uh, makes it so um, our system can't function in the way that it was intended to function, given the separated powers. Um, I think that's an incredibly important problem. But we ought to think about what the contributions towards that are. And I think that money is part of it. I think the media is part of it. I think um, the way we, um, you know, run primaries is part of it. And all of them can be addressed uh, towards the end of trying to get us to a place where we have a more representative influence inside of our democracy. One of the the possibilities you bring up is, I believe it's Representative Sarbanes' idea for a six-to-one match for small donors. So if you're giving money to a candidate, you know, and you want to give them 200 bucks, uh, all of a sudden you would have given them 1,200 bucks, which is great. But I do worry for the reasons you're discussing here that as appealing as that seems to me compared to those candidates just going to, to corporate donors, what that would actually create in practice is a much more polarized, much more extreme situation as people are trying to stand out to get the attention of the people who are going to make those donations. And so I, I wonder from your perspective how you would think about a funding system that didn't increase polarization as it increased representativeness or as it increased small donor power. Right. Well, so my favorite version of this right now, I mean, I think Sarbanes has been a real champion for reform, and H.R. 1 was incredibly important um, for crystallizing the idea of reform. Um, But my current favorite is actually um, Kirsten Gillibrand's proposal, which, you know, she's now proposing basically democracy dollars, $200 for every federal election you're involved in. So uh, at least $200 every cycle, some cycles $400, some cycles $600, depending on whether you're electing a senator and a president. And the, and the point about that is that if everybody has the same democracy dollars, then the effect of those small dollar contributions is not polarizing. It's representative, um, as opposed to the Sarbanes world or the world we live in right now, where it's only those who are motivated to give their regular dollars who are having an influence in the funding market. And of course, those people are going to be, by definition, more polarized than um, than uh, than the average set. So I think we should think about public funding systems that avoid polarization. I completely agree with you on that. And they could be either things like Gillibrand's solution, um, uh, uh, Rokahana has a similar proposal in the House, 
Or they could be things like, you know, the old system uh, for public funding that we had, for example, for presidential elections, where once you qualified, you just got a check and that was what you used. It wasn't going to amplify the extremes. It was going to just give you a chance to participate. So my colleague, um, actually, it breaks my heart to say she's no longer my colleague. She's at The New York Times now. But Sarah Cliff did a great uh, story for her podcast, The Impact, about uh, a very similar reform, a democracy dollar reform in Seattle. Yes. And what she found was that basically nobody used the money, um, including people who some people who had actually helped put it into to law didn't use the money. Um, I know people in Seattle who are political junkies who didn't even know the money was coming, um, so they didn't use the money. And so I, I do wonder if the democracy dollar – I take your point that the fact that everybody would have some of this money should make it in theory representative of, of, of the public's view. But if in fact only – I mean I, I was going to say 20 percent, but I think in Seattle it's something like less than 1 percent of people use the money. If the only people who use the money are the people who are extremely attached to the political system, then in some ways you're you're replicating what we've seen in the media and other places, which is, you know, that's it, it all comes from the people with the most intensity. And the people who are the most intense are intense and attached to the political system because they're very polarized around it. Well, we might be having an argument just about the facts. So let's just bracket it if it is. But, uh, you know, the work that I've seen, for example, from Jennifer Herwig and um, – I think she's doing this work with Kate Shaw, says that, in fact, the effect in Seattle has been quite dramatic. It's dramatically changed the character of the money that's raised by those candidates opting into it. So if you're a candidate opting into taking Seattle democracy dollars, then you're less likely, like overwhelmingly less likely to take money outside of the district. You're getting most, the vast majority of your money from people inside the district. And the people you're getting from, getting the money from inside the district are substantially different from the kinds of people that you would be getting money from if you were just doing it the old-fashioned way. So I, I think, in fact, the evidence is there's been a substantial effect about it. But whether that's true about Seattle or not, let's agree on the principles. We need to make sure that the system doesn't replicate or exacerbate the problem of polarization. Um, my view is if this money were out there, if Gillibrand's system were out there, it would just change the dynamics of how campaigns decided they were going to spend their money to spend their time to raise money. In Connecticut, when Connecticut adopted a version of small dollar funding where you basically qualified and then you got a check from Connecticut, 78% of the elected representatives opted into that system in the first year. And so they were opting into a system that was not exacerbating the polarization. It was just allowing them to spend their time being representatives as opposed to being, you know, low-paid uh, fundraisers on the telephone or in cocktail parties. Um, that that should be the objective. Get the numbers right so the vast majority opt into it, but make sure that the thing that they're opting into doesn't exacerbate the problem that I think we both agree is uh, pretty fundamental to our current political system. Yeah, so so I take your point that I'm not saying that democracy vouchers haven't had a good effect in Seattle. Um, the, the number from Sarah's piece is that 3.3% of Seattle residents use their democracy vouchers. And maybe over time it'd be bigger and in a federal election it could be much larger, right? Uh, because there's just so much more information. But it was still a it, it, it's still a low turnout, so I worry about it replicating some of those in, in intensity effects. But can I just ask one question about that? So 3.3% used democracy vouchers. How many were giving private contributions before democracy vouchers? Yeah, I don't know. I assume I, I, I would be very open to the idea that, it, that that's an increase, but it's not a representative um, sample of the sure. population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, it, so that was basically the point that I think Herwig is concluding, that it's a substantial improvement over what we've had. And it's going to take a lot to get it to the place that it's, you know, a representative sample or representative number. 
But that's the direction we ought to be pushing it. We live in a world constitutionally now where um, political donations are considered to be speech. And so the idea that you would just say we're going to have public funding of elections, but also we're not going to have private funding of elections has kind of dropped off the, the radar for most reformers. But in an imaginary space where you could actually change the constitution or you, you would have Supreme Court justices who reinterpreted Buckley v. Vallejo or something else, do you think that would be wise? Do you think it should just be the case that politics is not one of those things that is funded by private dollars whatsoever? So my focus is exactly as this book does on the dependency of the representatives. And I actually am not sure I think there's a problem in a world where representatives were not dependent on small on, on you know, a small number of people giving them a large amount of money. Instead, you know, we're a public funder or something like that. And also people were out there in the marketplace like saying their piece, whether that was, you know, buying a, a slice of the Wall Street Journal to put a little ad up about, you know, mobile oil or whatever those ads were, or, you know, buying time on, um, on uh, you know, Fox News or on uh, MSNBC to advertise their particular political views. I think the world where you imagine not enabling people to um, spend their money to speak um, is, a, is a very dramatic change from the world we live in right now and not one I'm absolutely convinced would be in all respects better. What I am convinced of is that if you could just liberate the politicians from the concentrated influence of money and give them a chance to, you know, be politicians without worrying that everything they do was going to cost them contributions, um, that would improve the opportunity of them to be our representatives um, while not, you know, radically changing the, the world of speech. So I, I would love to see the Constitution uh, uh, amended or the Supreme Court to interpret the capacity to say that candidates could only take money uh, in a certain way, whether that's public money or very strong limitations on private money plus public money. Um, but I'm not eager to see the world amended, the Constitution amended to say Congress can block people from speaking politically. I think that would be a very dangerous world. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. 
So there's one more topic I want to make sure we cover from from your book and your work that I think is is not just worthwhile, but I think it's worth people thinking about in their individual lives. Because um, it can sound, as we're talking about all these institutions and corruptions, that we're talking about people out there, or maybe at least people like me. <laughs> um, but you write about the way in which good people are particularly vulnerable to institutional corruption. Um, if I could say good people are precisely the most vulnerable to these subtle corruptions. Can you talk a bit about why? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting and terrifying psychological truth that the more convinced you are of your goodness, the more license you're going to give yourself to behave badly. So, you know, there have been these studies for a long time that demonstrates that ethics professors are no more ethical than um, the average person, and, and, and some suggest they're less ethical. That's that's this dynamic in what way? revealing itself. Well, you know, in just the sense that they they cheat on the margin more. They um, they might feel themselves entitled to take license because they feel like they've devoted themselves in the opposite direction so con- consistently. So one dimension of this is this feeling this license to behave badly because you've behaved well. The other dimension is to the extent you're talking about smart people. Smart people are the people best able to avoid the consequence of the facts. So, you know, you know, when people study global warming for people on the right or GMOs for people on the left, when people study the effect of um, facts on people's views about global warming or GMOs, um, what they don't find is that dumb people are persuaded overwhelmingly and smart people aren't. To the contrary, they find that, um, you know, ordinary intelligence leaves you open to the facts. But superintelligence leaves you really empowered to defend yourself against the facts. So you can rationalize almost anything that's thrown at you if you're a smart enough person. But if you're not that smart, you hear the facts and you're kind of made amenable to it. Well, put those two things together, smart and moral license. And what you find is that, you know, certainly people who live in the zip code that I'm in right now ought to spend a lot of time uh, reflecting on just how likely they are to be misleading themselves about what's right and what's wrong, and just how likely it is that their certainty about what they think they should do or what they think other people should do might be affected by one of these two kinds of psychological weaknesses. And the consequence of that is not to do nothing, but to constantly criticize, be self-critical, um, in ways that leave yourself open to to changing your mind. And that's the hardest thing for people to do, especially people, you know, in the world that I live in. One of the other pieces of this isn't just good or smart, but social and nice. You you talk a bit in that chapter about the ways in which friendship is used to create subtle forms of corruption. Um, you talk there about pharmaceutical representatives and how much they use friendship and taking people out to lunch to create a feeling of reciprocity. But I was thinking about lobbyists in D.C. who are known for their backstopping bonhomie and who are you know very fun to to be around. And I've never gone, but every year we would get invited to John Podesta's pool party. And mm-hmm. you know, there's this whole like the the way they work is by being friends, right? You know, members of Congress uh, go golfing with them not because they think it's a corrupt thing to do, but because they've become their friends, and it's you know, and often is their former friends from Congress who are now lobbyists. And, you know, I think in reporting, we have a little bit of this, too, that we use, uh, we develop friendships with sources uh, that are on some level real and social. And on another way, it is a way for us to get information. And it's in the kind of tension of that, that a lot of reporting work is done um, in very, I think, ethically complicated ways. And so that, 
that the, the sociability um, and the way that can affect you is I think really that that's a really hard one to police in yourself because it feels like you're just being a good, decent person listening to someone who's given you a, a good turn or just being nice to somebody who's been nice to you. Yeah. And I think that the lesson for that is to not imagine we're going to get rid of it. Um, indeed, we shouldn't want to get rid of it. You know, when I listen to politicians, like I once was on a panel and Barney Frank was insisting that he was never affected by um, lobbyists or other people who were trying to persuade him through their kindness or through their contributions. And my immediate reaction, I didn't have the courage to say it to him, but my immediate reaction was, you're just confessing to being a psychopath. If you really are never affected by normal human reciprocity, then there's something not normal about you. Um, and, and so rather than imagining we're going to have a cadre of supermen and superwomen who are Spock, um, I don't know what the other gender of Spock is, but whatever, you know, the non-gendered Spock um, running our Congress and running our media institutions, um, but instead recognize that it's humans in every one of these layers, then we have to worry deeply about the institutional incentives within those structures. So the problem with lobbying, in my view, is not that lobbyists are friendly or that lobbyists have information they're trying to convey to members of Congress. I think it's good to have friendly lobbyists. I think it's good to have lobbyists conveying information. It's that members of Congress feel so dependent on those lobbyists. They feel dependent both because lobbyists channel an extraordinary amount of money to members of Congress, and they also feel dependent because Newt Gingrich blew up the institutional infrastructure for members of Congress to know facts independent of lobbyists. Like it used to be Congress had its own uh, army of information researchers who could give members of Congress what they needed to know. Now members of Congress need to turn to lobbyists to get to what they need to know to figure out what to do. And it's no surprise then that what they learn from the lobbyist isn't just the unvarnished truth, but is a truth that benefits the clients of the lobbyists. So we need to just understand, we need to take humans seriously and take the failings and weaknesses and characters and beauties of humans seriously and build institutions around them rather than building institutions imagining that there's rational actors at the core or or a Spock at the core, um, and and then be surprised when it turns out that they're vulnerable to all the things that we know we as humans are vulnerable to. But let's say you're not a human building an institution uh, or building institutional design. You're just a human. You're a human in an institution. What does all this mean for you? What is how, how do you police corruption, the effect of institutional corruption on yourself? Yeah, well, at first I think we need to admit that it's not going to be possible for everybody in every institution, because uh, you know institutions are not open to this. And even when they've got built-in protections, like whistleblower protections, what we know about whistleblowers is they typically are not normal members of the institution. So you know they typically are like women in institutions filled with men at the top. Um, they're people who are not socially right plugged into the core of those institutions. So I think one thing to recognize is it's not going to be possible in every institution. But part of what we need to do to combat that is to build the kind of recognition that I'm trying to develop in this book. It's a recognition of uh, the natural way in which these institutions weaken themselves and the courage, not so much to condemn people and say you're an evil person or you are an individually corrupt person, but to just ask the question, is this what we're supposed to be doing? Is this how we're supposed to be behaving? You know, I imagine in a newsroom, you've seen this conversation a million times. Should we be focusing on this question? Like, is this really what the public needs to be hearing about? 
Um, and as you ask that question, you're invoking shared norms of the fundamental ideals of the institution. And if the response to your invocation of those shared norms is, what are you talking about? That's the old days. That's not who we are today. Then maybe it's time to move on to find a different place or a different set of norms or a different institution. But um, I still think that we could make enormous progress just by becoming more self-critical about the institutions we live within, all of us. Uh, and and pushing those institutions to be better than they are. I think it's a good place to to bring it to a close. So let me ask you the the final question we always uh, ask on the podcast, which is, what are three books that have influenced your thinking that you would recommend to the audience? Yeah, so I am obsessed with American history these days. And so the first of these books would be um, The Half Has Never Been Told, which is a story of American slavery. Because, you know, what's so striking about that debate is how still to this day, we as Americans have little clue about everything that has gone into building building us as we are. Um, Francis Fukuyama's um, Political Order and Political Decay uh, is extraordinary in understanding like the limits on the potential of our democracy in particular. And then the most terrifying recent book uh, is Shoshana Zuboff's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which I think is lots of problems with the book, but um, if you want to be terrified about where the internet is taking us, um, um, I think that's a good place to start. Larry Lessig, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you to Lawrence Lessig for being here. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. <laughs>